0: Our Father in heaven, we do praise you and we want your name hollowed in this place by our attitudes with which we study your word. You said that you have established your word even above your name. So we give honor to the reading of your word, the studying of the Bible. And we pray, Lord, as we hear this description of heaven that we would become more ready and excited for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a while back, I had a a real privilege of going to the White House in Washington, D.C., where um, a few of us were invited to meet with the president over issues regarding faith-based organizations and how they interface with the government. Well, you just got to imagine how cool it was to stand in the White House, go from the green room, they call it, to the red room, to the east room, this big, huge meeting room where the president would come in and that huge portrait of um, uh, George Washington is there, that famous portrait. And just taking it all in, I was there with Jim Dobson, Max Lucado, and several others. So I'm looking out the windows of the White House from the inside, and I'm thinking, Wow! This is cool. Okay, now that was cool. But we're about to read, again, John's tour of God's house. And he sort of says the equivalent when he says, Behold! That's like kind of the Bible way of saying, Wow! A couple of times he says, Behold, as he checks out God sitting upon his throne. Now, as we work our way through some more of these verses this morning... I just want you to notice not only what John sees, but notice what he doesn't see. John doesn't say anything about we're going to be sitting around bored forever on clouds 24-7. He doesn't say anything about seeing Peter at the pearly gates of heaven welcoming us in. Just, I saw a door open in heaven and behold. By the way, I heard this little joke about a cat who died and went to heaven. Let me just tell it to you. Cat died, went to heaven, and Peter was there at the pearly gates. And Peter said, you know, you've been such a good cat all of these years. Anything you want, you name it, it's yours. The cat said, well, you know what? I've lived with a poor family my whole life. It's been tough. And I could only sleep on the hard wooden floors. And Peter interrupted said, say no more. And instantly appeared a fluffy satin pillow. For that little cat to sleep on in heaven. So he was very excited. A few days later, six little mice died in a tragic accident. They went to heaven. Peter was there at the pearly gates. Welcoming the mice into heaven. Said, hey, anything you want here, you've been good little mice. Whatever you want is yours. And so this one little spokes mouse said to Peter, You know, Peter, we've had a tough our whole lives. We've had to always run, run, run dogs chase us, cats chase us, women with brooms chase us. It'd be really nice in heaven if we could have roller skates. So Peter said, say no more. And these cute little tiny roller skates were outfitted for all these little mice. Well, about a week went by and Peter decided, I'm going to check up on the cat. So Peter goes, the cat's sleeping on that nice little soft pillow and gently wakes the cat up and says, hey, how you doing? Are you happy here? The cat said, oh, Peter, big stretch, Ah oh. I've never been happier in my life. And those meals on wheels that you're sending over, they're the best. Okay, so I've decided that's going to be my new answer for are there animals in heaven? I guess it goes, how far do you want to take this thing? Well, John, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, John describes the ultimate adventure we've seen so far. As he saw and he looked, that throne set in heaven and one who sat on the throne, this brilliant light show of resplendent display of God's, God's magnificence and brilliance. Randy Alcorn, who has written a number of things about heaven, wrote this, Satan labors to give people an inaccurate view of heaven. Our enemy slanders three things, God's person... God's people and God's place. Some of his favorite lies concern heaven. That actually makes sense. I would say that Satan has a vested interest into lying to people about heaven. Because if you remember, heaven used to be his hangout, his digs. He was forcibly evicted from heaven. And it must drive him nuts as he realizes our future home was his ex-home. And so he tells all sorts of misconceptions about what heaven's going to be like. That's why it's always good to look at what the Bible says. And John chapter 4 and 5 tell us what John saw in heaven. Now, today we continue. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last time of John chapter 4. Now we turn our focus from the throne and the one who sat on the throne to what's around the throne. What the inhabitants of heaven are doing. And we find the main thing they are doing is they're worshiping. So it's safe to say in heaven one of the things you're going to do is worship. It's not the only thing you're going to do by the way. There are more. The Bible says you'll be given tasks to do. You will administrate in the kingdom age. You're going to help rule and reign with Christ. But one of the things you and I will do is worship. In fact, I'll put it this way. One of the few things you can do right now that you will do forever in heaven, is to worship God. You see, there won't be any evangelization in heaven. We're not going to have any crusades in heaven. You won't be personally witnessing to anybody in heaven. You won't be feeding the poor in heaven. You won't be discipling people in heaven. But you will be worshiping in heaven. That's something we can do right now. So, how did they do it, and how do they do it in heaven? How could our worship now closely reflect that which goes on in heaven? Pretty exciting to even think about that. This last week, we had a sister in our fellowship go to heaven. She was on her deathbed. She was quite ill for a couple of years. And Saturday night, she was tuning into our broadcast. They would always listen at home. And she heard last week's description, what John saw in heaven. And it so captivated her, the next morning she wanted to hear it again. So she got up and was listening to the live broadcast about heaven, and her family was around her talking, and she kept saying, be quiet. And eventually, she cried out to God, God, deliver me from this body. Well, she was taken to heaven, the place we were describing, the place she could only imagine in her mind's eye, today she's enjoying that very place, and The comfort of heaven, the comfort of those thoughts to her and her family was indescribable. Today, what we want to look at as we continue is two things, basically. The occupants, the prominent occupants in heaven. The other ones that John sees as he looks around the throne. And then, the occupation. What is their primary occupation as we see it in heaven? So let's look at Uh, the others that are in heaven, John is definitely not alone. Verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? Some suggest they're angels. I don't believe that. Angels are never called elders in the Bible. Others suggest these represent the 24 priests in the Old Testament. Remember, there were 24 courses in the priesthood that were administered throughout the entire year for the temple worship. Again, I don't think that's it. Uh, They were never called elders either. I think it's best to see the 24 elders as representing the whole church. And here's why. Eight times in the New Testament... Believers are said to rule and reign with Christ in eternity. We're going to rule with him. We're going to reign with him. And here these 24 elders are sitting on thrones helping administrate. So as there were 24 priests that represented the whole nation, these 24 elders represent the whole church. And I think it's pretty definitive as you go down into chapter 5. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, you listen to the song they sing. And they say, For you have redeemed us by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Only the church can sing those words. They have to be the church singing that. So the 24 elders representing the body of believers in heaven, I believe at least... Then look at verse 5. There's more. And from the throne proceeds lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What on earth is that? Does that mean there are seven holy spirits? No, it doesn't. We know from Ephesians and from Corinthians there's one body and one spirit. They're not seven. This is simply apocalyptic symbolism. And notice that John ties the seven spirits of God with the seven lamps burning. Or if you know the temple or tabernacle, the sevenfold lampstand called the menorah. So as these seven lamps are the sevenfold lampstand, the seven spirits of God, I believe, represent the sevenfold working of the one Holy Spirit there's a text for that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It mentions the Spirit of the Lord. That's one. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and power, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold description of what the single Holy Spirit does. And there's more. Verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, get this, full of eyes in front and in back. Now is that wild or what? The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The term living creatures is a bit misleading when you think of a living creature, you might think of an animal. I remember I used to read a book to my son Nate when he was growing up called Where the Wild Things Are. Remember that book? When I hear the term living creature, that's what my mind goes to, those wild things. The Greek term is zōa, and it simply means a living thing, a living thing. And if, as you read this vision of John, it's almost identical to what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 1 and 10, and he described them as cherubim. Cherubim. These are the four cherubim, like Ezekiel, around the throne of God. These are a special classification of angelic beings. They guard the glory of God. They help administer judgment on the earth. Frankly, I can't wait to see these four cherubim just the description. It's sort of hard for me to get my mind around them. Ezekiel even says they were mobile, they had wheels, and there were eyes on the wheels. I just cannot wait to check this out. Well, there's more. Look at chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne... Remember, he saw the throne of God. That's the throne. In the midst of the throne... And of the four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now the lamb is Christ. We find that imagery throughout the book and the lamb is called Christ. He's the hero of the book. He's the hero of the story. Because in this chapter he is said to take the scroll the title deed of the earth, to bring full redemption to the earth, to rule and reign forever. And so here's the church along with the angelic hosts, the four living creatures, Worshiping and looking at Christ in heaven. Seeing him in his glory, which is exactly what Jesus prayed for. In John chapter 17, he said, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory which you have given me before the creation of the world. So we're looking around and we're seeing a lot more in heaven than just a throne and one who's sitting on it. There's even more than that. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 5. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This is heaven filled with the angelic hosts. There's a lot of angels. There's a lot of angels. 17 Old Testament books and 17 New Testament books all mention angels. 103 times in the Old Testament. Another 165 times in the New Testament, angels are mentioned. They're prominent. They're around. They minister to us, the Bible says, and they'll be in heaven worshiping with us. Huge choir. How many are there? A lot. You could say, well, I'm going to do the math. 10,000 times 10 That's 100 million angels. Did you know there was a theologian in um, the 1200s named Albertus Magnus who came up, he thought, with the precise number of angels? He wrote, he said, there are precisely 399,920,004 angels. How he ever came up with that number i do not know we don't know how many there are this construction simply means innumerable in greek it's muriades muriadōn kai kiliades kuriadōn translated myriads upon myriads upon thousands upon thousands this innumerable host so get the picture there's the throne there's the lamb there's this four cherubim these wild-looking Creatures with life in and around them, 24 elders representing the church, and as far as the eye can see, the angelic hosts. That's what John saw. Now let's let's turn from the occupants in heaven to the occupation. Their primary occupation is worship. Now it is funny, whenever you bring this up to people and you say, as they ask, well what are we going to be doing in heaven? And if you say, well, we're going to be worshiping in heaven, typically the response is, is that all? Because that sounds kind of boring. It sounds like one long church service. That's how we think about it. Now, this is why people resort to saying these things at funerals. I know that right now he's up in heaven playing golf. Golf? Or, I know that right now she's hiking in some mountain in heaven or some earthly activity. We always confine heaven to earthbound activities as if, well, there could be nothing better than golf or hiking or baking or whatever. We have to come up with something they like doing here on earth. As I read through Revelation 4 and 5, I get this idea that John isn't bored up there. It's not like he's twiddling his thumbs going, oh great, we're just like worshiping all the time. In fact, the theme that I keep getting from Revelation 4 and 5 is there's nothing more fascinating than God himself. He is taken by this. This is shock and awe for John. So let's just consider the kind of worship going on in heaven and see how that interfaces with us now because the name of this message is What on Earth is going on in heaven answer worship so let's see how our worship interfaces with that of heaven I want you to notice first of all the proper response in worship that is in heaven look at chapter 5 verse 8 Now when he, that is the lamb, when he had taken the scroll. So there's a definite action going on. The lamb is taking the title deed to the earth, which will imply full redemption through a series of judgment and his second coming. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song same. So it's when they saw the lamb take the scroll, their worship was a response to what he did. And here's the principle I want to make. Worship must be intellectual. Now hear me, follow me. Worship must be intellectual. It's what you see or know God to be or do that causes a response to God. Worship is the human response or the human reaction to a divine action. They knew what that meant when he took the scroll, and now here is the intelligent response. They worship the Lord. You see, worship involves the mind. We must think about what God has done, who God is. It's a response. One uh, person who wrote a lot on Heaven said this. At times throughout the day, as I work in my office, I find myself on my knees thanking God for His goodness. When I eat a meal with my wife, when I talk with a friend, or if I take my dog out for a walk, I worship God for His goodness. The world is full of praise prompters, but heaven will overflow with them. I'm going to lift out that little phrase. Praise Prompters. I like that. Learn to live your life being prompted by different things. Well, look what God is. That's Lord, thank you for that. Praise you for that. And heaven, he says, will overflow with them. So the action of God prompts the reaction of the heavenly host, and that is worship. Jesus said in Mark chapter twelve, verse thirty You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul all of your mind and all of your strength. Please dismiss the idea that worship is a mindless activity, that we just kind of get pumped up into a frenzy and disengage the mind. No, we engage the mind. And I think powerful worship is when your mind is stretched by the words of a song that give you a full understanding of God. I remember when I was first a Christian, you know, and I thought just singing... God is love from above, you know, that kind of stuff. Just sort of same words. I love you. I love you. I love you, Lord. That was just where it's at. And I never liked hymns because I grew up saying, oh, that's just old stuff. They don't know how to worship. We do. Then I started reading the hymns and I started listening to the depth of knowledge and theology that the hymn writers had. And as I would sing the hymns, it would stretch my understanding of who God is. And it helped me worship even more. So worship must be intellectual. And here in heaven we find that it is. Second thing I want you to notice is the position that is assumed in worship. And from this we derive the principle, worship is physical. It's not just something in the heart, it's also physical. Look back at chapter 4, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And again in chapter 5 verse 8, When they had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they falling down? Because, frankly, they're awestruck. They're awestruck. And they're so grateful. And their response is physical. They responded as ancient people would respond to royalty. If a king or queen walked in the room or you went into the throne room... You would always bow. You would always get on the knees. And so worship here is physical. 97 times the word worship appears in the Old Testament. I was looking it up and I discovered the normal word used from Hebrew, translated worship, is the word shacha, which means to bow down. Translated worship. To bow down. It also is translated to fall, also translated to stoop or to do obeisance to. It's a physical affirmation of honor and authority and respect. Psalm 95, verse 6 is one of the most famous ones. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down, shachah. Now, it's not that you have to bow down. It's not that you're not spiritual unless you bow down now. These are other expressions, as I name them to you, that you can do to enhance the physical expression of your worship. And the Bible talks about all of these. Another one is the raising of the hands. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, Wherever you assemble, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God. Can I be honest with you? The first time I was in a service as a brand new Christian, I watched people doing this. I thought my, my mind, what's up with this? What are they doing? It's so precious. You know what it is? When you lift your hands, it's a sign of welcome. A child, when a child sees mom or dad, they put their hands up like, pick me up. I welcome you into my space, my life. Adults stick out their hand to shake a hand. Again, a sign of welcome. Also, the raising of hands, I believe, speaks of surrender. Remember the old Westerns? Come out with your hands up. Law enforcement officers still want hands up when they deal with the bad guys. Because when your hands are up, you're in surrender mode. You can't do anything else when your hands are up. You can't text message your friends. You can't write other stuff. Your hands are up. You've got to be focused. Another position the Bible speaks about is kneeling. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Like bowing, kneeling is a sign of humility. It means I'm preoccupied. I'm preoccupied with God. He is my focus. I'm preoccupied with Him. Another expression the Bible speaks about is dancing. I know some of you are going, <gasps> thought dancing was bad. Well, it can be. Somebody once asked me, can Christians dance? My answer, well, some can and some can't. Well <laughs> I'll tell you what the Bible says about it. Psalm 149, verse 3, let them praise his name with the dance. Now, this doesn't mean great. I'm going to go out and hip-hop tonight. The idea is in the context of celebration, the great feasts of Israel were accompanied by people dancing before the Lord. David danced before the Lord. In uh, Exodus 15, Miriam and the women of Israel played the tambourine and danced before the Lord. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know it well. Solomon says there is a time to weep, there is a time to laugh, there is a time to mourn, and there is a time to what? Thank you. Dance, right there in the Bible. Another expression is standing. Psalm 135. Praise him, you servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord. Now, here's where I'm getting at. It's funny how in the West, here in the Western culture, we have guarded ourselves so carefully against any physical expression in worship, except for one sitting. That's acceptable. Yeah, Lord, I just like to sit. It's comfortable for me. See, I think the message could be perhaps, it's really all about me, as long as I'm comfortable, instead of preoccupied with him. Another one the Bible speaks about is the lifting of the eyes. Psalm 123. Unto you I lift my eyes. That is, I look up. Jesus did this when he prayed. He lifted his eyes toward heaven. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Guess what I found? As I looked through the scripture, closing your eyes, folding your hands, not in the Bible. Doesn't make it wrong. It just didn't make God's top five, that's all. (laughs) There's tremendous freedom in all of this. But these are expressions and the physicality of worship was and is, I believe, experienced in heaven. Third thing I'd like you to notice about their worship is the possessions employed in worship. Notice in chapter 5, verse 8, they each have a harp. Now you know a harp is a musical instrument. Now again, I'll be very honest with you. The first time I read this, I wasn't too excited about it. Because my mind went to the picture, great, I'm going to be sitting on a cloud with a harp. Right? All day long. Now, I don't particularly like to play harp. I don't mind hearing a harp. I love it in the right context. I really do. I admire a great harpist or harpoonist or whatever <laughs> it is. But the idea for me playing a harp, it's like, I don't get and, and so I studied this and found out that the harp is an ancient trapezoidal instrument with strings that are usually strummed with a pick. So I'm thinking, my mind goes to, huh, it sounds like a guitar. So heaven sounded a little cooler to me right now when I first found that out. And then I read this verse in the Amplified Bible. Let me read it to you. And each one having a harp, that is a lute or a guitar. So I thought, okay, heaven's sounding really cool right about now, especially if we can put a little pickup on it, kind of crank it a little bit. It's just my frame of reference. Here's my point. The worship of God throughout the Bible is musical whether they were moving the Ark of the Covenant during the time of David, whether they were dancing before the Lord after the Red Sea episode in Exodus 15, the great feast days and festivals of Israel, the the choir that was in the temple with musical instruments and trumpets, even in battle sometimes music was involved. Psalm 150 says, Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise Him with loud cymbals and with clashing cymbals. So worship is musical. And I think in heaven, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. Martin Luther, sometimes he could say things like nobody else could. Martin Luther said, next to theology, I give to music the highest place and honor. Music is... The art of the prophets, the only art that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given us. It's true, isn't it? We all love music. We play it when we work, when we're in the car, we tap to it, we move to it. It's how we're made. It's going to be in heaven. Martin Luther also said this. Listen, this is classic. If any man despises music, as all fanatics do, for him I have no liking. For music is a gift and the grace of God, not the invention of men. Thus it drives out the devil and makes people cheerful. Then one forgets all wrath, impurity, and other devices. And the fourth and final thing I want you to notice about the worship in heaven is the kind of praise that is ascribed in Worship. As you read through this, we're going to read a few verses in just a minute. You get the idea that they put their whole being into it, their whole heart. It leads me to this statement. Worship is emotional. Yes, it's intellectual, but that's not all it is. It's also emotional. Jesus said the Father is looking for worshipers who so worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, let, let's look at this. Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, elders, 10,000 times 10,000, saying verse 12 with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and as such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. They're they're, they're into this. They're into this. Remember Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. They poured themselves into it. And I read the word loud here. They worshipped him with a loud voice. You know what it, it seems like to me in the Bible? It seems to me that God's into volume. Now, I don't mean just cranking up the PA. I mean your own personal... They had no PA then. Just your own voice singing loud. I don't think God's into... Shout to the Lord all the earth. Shout not to the Lord. I remember I had a camp counselor one time... I wasn't involved in the songs they were singing. he said, let me tell you something. If God gave you a good voice, then use it to praise him. If God gave you a bad voice, give it back to him. (laughs) Now, you might be saying, well, I am not a good singer. Deal with it. Because I'll say to all you non-musical people, the voice that you have is the voice the Lord God Almighty gave you. And it is an adequate instrument to praise the Lord. The Bible says, make a joyful noise. Anybody can do that. So, you don't understand. When I sing, it's a noise, not a joyful noise. Nobody around me is joyful. I'll give you this instruction if you don't sing well, please sing loud. Because what will happen is there's somebody next to you who's not singing, but they have a great voice. They're going to hear you and go, oh, I've got to drown that person out. <laughs> and there's going to be this huge anthem of worship going to sound great. And it's going to reflect heaven. They sang with a loud voice. Now in Isaiah chapter 29, God through the prophet said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they're going through the motions, but there's no emotion. When you sing, sing like you mean it. I know people are wired differently. Some are. Um, very exuberant and emotional, and others are stoic, almost flatline in their personalities. And this, so we are wired differently. I understand that. But I also hear people use this excuse well, I'm not the emotional type. Now, some people that tell me that, I know them. I'm not emotional. I go, really? Boy, because a couple of weeks on the golf course, you were really emotional. When you hit that great drive, it was like your only good shot all day. You were so stoked, you jumped up and you shouted. You're not emotional. You're emotional over some things. And those who are non-emotional, when their kid scores a touchdown or gets an award, they get very emotional. Why is it that this one area, we feel we have to shut it off? I've been to some sporting events. Ever been to the pit when the Lobos score? You ever see somebody going like this? Or, or have you ever been to a concert with a big band and watched the people? Pagans know how to get excited. <laughs> so, so why do Christians think that enthusiasm about the most worthy thing in the universe must somehow be carefully contained? Do you think God's like into that? Then think God says, way to go, way to hold it all inside, way to tell no one that you love me? Good worship. Somebody once said, God isn't too excited about secret admirers. So tell him. Don't be afraid to express it. I'm not trying to make you emotional automatons. I'm just saying, however you do it, put your all into it. Put your max into it. And when you do, you're getting close to heaven. There's a lot of praise prompters. There's a lot of things that God allows in our lives that we could look at and go, Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. I worship you, Lord. And you do that through the day, I would almost guarantee you that by the time we gather corporately, it's going to be exuberant because you've learned to make that your lifestyle. There was a farmer who lived out in the country. He was a believer, a very simple man. He was visited by a relative of his who was an unbeliever. They sat down that first evening for a meal at the farmhouse. And the believing, simple farmer raised his hands and thanked God for the meal and worshiped the Lord and said amen. And afterwards, the unbelieving relative said, How old-fashioned. No one believes in prayer like that anymore. And the farmer humbly acknowledged that he was right, that it is old-fashioned, and that there are even some on his farm that don't pray and don't give thanks. And the unbeliever lightened up and said, Oh, and who are these wise, enlightened ones? And the farmer said, My pigs. (laughs) So let's get above the level of an animal. And we have been given voices and bodies and spirits to worship and love the Lord with everything. Because He is worthy. And we are the redeemed ones. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father. Heaven's going to be so exciting. We think of those loved ones. Some of us are missing a husband or a wife or a child or a parent or a grandparent or a friend. We know they're in heaven. And just the thought that our worship on the earth, can bring us close to the experience that they are having in heaven. It's something that on earth we can do that is also being done in heaven. And just like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that this fulfills part of that prayer. As we worship you, in Jesus' name, amen.